McMinnville, Oregon. This is Crisscrossing Science, the podcast that has a good episode every 76 years. I'm Michael Crosser. Of course, you know Chad Tilburg. And today's title is Comets. Hey, Chad. Good afternoon, Michael. So we are continuing a trend that we've been doing lately of having time-sensitive episodes. <laughs> yeah, I got all excited when there was a news story about a new comet that had been discovered and yeah. is going to be visible in the night sky here at the end of January, beginning of February. And I thought, ooh, we should talk about that and try to get it out in time for people to learn a little bit about comets and then maybe get out and see it themselves. You must be talking about Comet C slash 2022 space E3, parentheses ZTF. <laughs> I am. I am. That's the one. Yep. So... I don't know. Are you going to explain what all those letters mean? Well, it was discovered in 2022. Okay. Well, I could have guessed that. <laughs> Is ZTF like the initials of the person who found it or something? Yeah. They used the Zwicky Transient Facility at the Palomar Observatory in Southern California. So that's where oh. the ZTF comes from. Okay. It was discovered by Frank Massey and Bryce Bolin in March of 2022. So it was the third object discovered in the fifth half month of the year. And so that's why it's E3. Okay. <laughs> and the C part, it just must be Comet 2022 E3, and then in parentheses, the telescope used to discover it. Okay. That makes sense. I'm going to start using... Oh, does it? Does yeah, it make sense? Uh, yeah. I'm going to start using those dating conventions when I um, <laughs> date things. Yeah. It's the seventh half month of the year. <laughs> this will be a test. E3. Can you imagine turning out a syllabus where all the time, the dates and everything are in this sort of nomenclature? Yes, yeah. I can. In fact, you and should I do that next time you teach <laughs> astronomy. I might do that. <laughs> but anyway, this is an exciting discovery. It was just recently discovered within the last year. And so, and by tracking it, it turns out all celestial objects, if you track them long enough, you can actually map out their path. Mm -hmm. And you can actually figure out, well, it turns out all stable orbit follows an elliptical path. And so mm -hmm. if you study it long enough, you can kind of map it out and figure out like, in this case, they figured out that this comet last came near the sun about 50,000 years ago. Hmm. 50,000 years ago. So yeah, what was going on back then? Yeah, well, that was coming near the end of when Neanderthals would have been around, but Neanderthals would have still been around hmm. probably interbreeding with some of our grandparents, some of our great, 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 great grandparents uh, in Europe and Asia. So that's kind of cool. I mean, the last time this thing was here, there were two different species of Homo on planet Earth. Huh. And if the Neanderthals lived for several hundreds of thousands of years, the Neanderthals would have seen it a number of times. Huh. So that's kind of an interesting thing to contemplate that this really obvious object in the sky would have been seen by those eyes yeah probably noticed are we gonna it's, you mentioned their their orbits are we gonna get into a little bit about what determines their orbits and yeah we can where, where they're coming from and stuff okay well first let's talk about what if people are excited about this and want to check it out uh-huh so this comment is coming we are recording in in mid-january right now and it's close to the sun but it's it's actually going to pass within 42 million kilometers of earth and so february first is the time that it'll be the closest to earth which okay. will mean that that's sort of the largest it'll appear to us right because to have something be able to be seen in the sky it depends on both how bright it is which is generally how big it is you know how much light it can reflect by itself and then also how close it gets to earth okay so you said 42 million kilometers yes okay can you sort of help me conceptualize that in terms of something i might be more familiar with like how far is it to the moon how many times 
the distance to the moon are we talking here? Well, so the moon is about 380,000 kilometers. 380,000. Okay. So it's about 100 times farther away from us than the moon is then. <laughs> okay. Got it. So that's far. Yeah. So it's not it's not coming terribly close to us. And in fact, because it's not terribly close, it may be a little bit hard to see. Okay. So um, you need to know where to look. Yeah. So you need to really have some idea of where to look. It's actually going to be passing right now. It's coming in between the big and little dippers in the Northern Hemisphere. Okay. And right. so what's really cool about that is just where it happens to be. That means that it'll be up probably about now for, it depends where you are, your latitude wise, but we're at about the 45th latitude here in Orion. Mm -hmm. And so about now it, it should be up the entire night. Mm. So. If we could get a clear night. Maybe we could see it. Yeah. Well, so because the, the tail of the little dippers doesn't move in the sky, you know, that's Polaris, right? And so anything that's really close to that has a chance to be up the entire night. I see. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Of course, it's this is a dim object. And so if there are other light sources anywhere around, it's going to be harder to see it. For instance, if you are, if north of you is, say, Portland. So even mm -hmm. if you live on a tall hill with normally great viewing, if you're looking up towards Portland, you're going to have a lot of light pollution and may not be able to see it anyway. Mm. Not that I'm giving away your home location, Chad, but um, <laughs> but you'll probably have to go elsewhere for that. So if you want to see it, you'll want to get away from light pollution Apparently, there are predictions, maybe some of the forecasts suggest that maybe you could even see it with your naked eye if you know what you're looking for. Mm -hmm. But it's going to be fairly diffuse. It's going to be sort of just a blur in the sky for the most part. Okay. So you need to go somewhere with very little light pollution. And it will also be tricky. February 5th is actually when we have a full moon. And so with the moon up, that's going to be a big light source in the sky as well. So it may be very hard to see it Okay. with the naked eye. And you'd have to know what you're looking for with a telescope. Okay. So those are good things to know so that if they get a clear night or they know a clear night's coming, yeah. plan ahead so that you can get out somewhere where it's mm -hmm. good and dark and know where to look. So yeah. cool. I love looking at comets. I remember a few years ago when a comet came past, I, I can't remember which one it was, hmm. took my telescope out into the driveway and I was able to get several good looks at it. And oh, I don't know, very cool. just something so interesting to me about what they are and planets were okay, I guess. But yeah, uh, I regret Halley's Comet came in 1986, actually. And I wish I had taken the chance to actually go look for it. Yeah, my dad took me out to go see it. So I did get a glimpse of it and I remember seeing it and being a little bit confused about what all the hubbub was because it was such a small thing in the sky and all the pictures I'd seen on the nightly news or whatever were of these, you know, giant white balls with these really long tails, mm. almost look like a Q-tip or something, you know? Mm -hmm. And I thought that's what I was going to see, but it was just this very, very little faint thing. But I, I do remember seeing it. So, hmm. so 76 years from 1986, I don't know if I'll still be around when it comes back, but it would be cool to see it then too. 2062. Is that right? I think so. Another 40 years, maybe. Hopefully I'll still, well, I don't know if hopefully or not. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> so how the next 40 years go. All right. So you've seen comets. Uh -huh. What do you know about comets? What have you seen? And can you describe it to our listeners? Well, uh, my understanding is that they have this orbit that goes well beyond the uh, limit of our most distant planets mm -hmm. and that it's highly elliptical mm -hmm. and that they are mostly ice, I guess. Yeah. That's kind of what I know. Yeah. That, well, you also know that they have tails. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Well, so you asked me about orbits earlier, so we can talk about that now, that all stable orbits are elliptical in some way. Okay. And so, for instance, Earth, our orbit is not a perfect circle going around the sun. Mm -hmm. There are times when we're closer and there are times when we're farther away. 
And it just happens we're in mid-January right now recording. Now is about when we're the closest to the sun through mm-hmm. the entire year. And so what are we? We're like, what, 90-something million kilometers from the sun? Is that about right? Or is it miles? That must be miles. I've got 1.5-something. It's 150 million kilometers, roughly, and about 91 to 93 million miles. Okay. So like at the closest point, we're about 91 and a half million miles. And then because it's an ellipse, the most distant part of it is like 93 million miles miles. Okay. So that's one and a half million miles difference. Yeah. Which, you know, I've never driven a car that long. So oh, that's that seems true. like a, a long, well, but you have, you have driven a car that distance with aid from the earth. <laughs> this is true. This yeah, is true. So. I, I did not account for the movement of the planet nor the sun through the galaxy. Yeah, yeah. So, so that's a really good point. I'm glad my odometer doesn't keep track of that. <laughs> and that, by the way, does confuse a lot of people who live in the northern hemisphere. Because right now is when we're the closest and we're getting the most light. But energy it's winter. From the sun. <laughs> and it's winter time. Yeah. Yeah. There is a, an effect of being closer to the sun that it, it should be hotter when you're closer to the sun than when you're farther away. But that's a smaller effect than the fact that the tilt of the earth affects our weather here more locally, more importantly than the distance away from the sun. Right. Because even though a million and a half miles is a big distance, that's small compared to the total distance that we mm-hmm. are actually distant away. Mm-hmm. But comets are very eccentric. They're like, ooh, I don't like circles. <laughs> I like to have a very squished circle when I orbit around. So that's what eccentric, oh, that, okay. that word is eccentric, but it, it means a different eccentric than what <laughs> we are really all over the place today. But anyway. Okay. So um, there, there's is like a really long and skinny. Yes. Ellipse. Okay. Yeah. So they will come in very close to the sun and then they will go back out really, really far away from the sun. And the sun's position in that long, skinny ellipse is is sort of all the way towards one of the edges, right? Yes. One of the far ends. Yeah. And so does their speed change as they go around? Is it like the closer they get to the sun, they do they get like faster and faster and faster and sort of slingshot around? Yeah. So if you looked at absolute speed, yes, they're definitely getting much faster as they're closer to the sun. And then they when they sling out and then they slow way down and then they turn around and come in and come in really fast and then slow mm-hmm. down when they're all out. Mm-hmm. And so with that, then it's interesting because comets are, you'll often hear astronomers say that they are dirty snowballs. Okay. What, it, yeah. what they're made up of, you know, they actually are made up of, it's not just snow. I mean, it would be like, I went to grad school in Michigan. And so it would be like making a snowball <laughs> towards the end of like March or something when it's almost ready to totally melt. And you've got all these little pebbles and things kind of mixed in there as well. It's not a fresh snowfall that you're making a snowball out of it. Right. So lots of gravel mixed in there. Exactly. So there's all these little pebbles and also gases, things that on earth would be a gas, things like nitrogen and hydrogen and all sorts of stuff. But a comet is spending most of its time way, way, way far away from the sun. And so it's so cold that those gases are actually solid. Hmm. And what happens then is that when they come in closer to the sun, the sun actually heats them up. And then these things that at the temperatures that they're normally at are perfectly solid, rocky type things, they'll start to sublimate and release some of those things. So these things like nitrogen gas. Mm -hmm. And hydrogen gas and stuff like that. Yeah. Okay. Because as I've learned from some of our recent conversations, nitrogen gas, it's just a few degrees Kelvin. Is that right? Well, it it turns uh, Sorry, the solid nitrogen or liquid nitrogen. nitrogen. I don't know the temperature for solid nitrogen. I know for liquid nitrogen is 77 Kelvin. 77 Kelvin. And we're at about 300 Kelvin. So it's about a fourth of our room temperature here. Okay. So those things basically start boiling, but it's still, the water is still 
very much frozen. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, it's it's just like, so Pluto, a satellite did a flyby, a really close flyby of Pluto a few years ago. And there are lakes of nitrogen, like a frozen lake of nitrogen. Whoa. So Pluto is far enough out that at some points in its orbit, it seems it's possible that it heats up enough that these lakes are just liquid nitrogen. And then when we did the flyover, it happened to be really, really far away. And so then they had frozen over again. So that's interesting. Okay. Yeah. All right. So there's a big temperature change depending on where this comet is in the solar system. Yeah. Yeah. And so then it, it starts evaporating. And, and so is that sort of like the debris cloud that we see? Yeah. Around so, the comet? I mean, the first thing that starts sublimating out is things like hydrogen and helium and so forth. Mm -hmm. And it makes it a little cloud around it that forms what's called the coma. And that's sort of a ball. So the, the nucleus of it is this rock still. And then you've got sort of this cloud around it called the coma, which if you look at it carefully, it, it looks like sort of a star, but it's kind of a fuzzy star or maybe uh -huh. a star with some hair growing off of it or something like that. <laughs> And so that's actually where the name comet comes from, is that in Middle English or Old French, comet or come, if it's French, <laughs> meant hairy star. Hairy star. Okay. And so on average, we get about a dozen or so of these coming close to the sun every single year. Hmm. So there's a lot of comets out in the solar system, but most of those are hard to see. They, they're so small and they don't get close enough to the sun to really warm up and be noticeable. And so only with powerful telescopes can you really track them and see what's going on. But roughly speaking, every five to 10 years or so, there are ones that come in close enough so that they really start expanding out and heating up and so forth so that they're really visible. And particularly if they come in close enough to the earth as well, then they're very noticeable and can be seen with the naked eye. Okay. So tell me more about, you talked a little bit about the coma yeah. around it. And I should say also that how easily you can see a comet or really any object is really how big it is. If it's really, really small, it's not reflecting very much light because not very much light is actually running into it. Mm -hmm. And so when this coma expands out, then that is effectively making the comet a bigger object. And so it is reflecting more light. And so it's possible to see it more easily than you would otherwise see it. Okay. And so comets are, when they're far out in the solar system, they're very hard to find because it's just a tiny little boulder, basically. Oh, that makes sense. But when they come in really close to the sun, then you can actually see them a little more easily. Okay. And so in addition to that, then one of the characteristic features of a comet is that tail. Yeah. And is that just sort of like the leavings of its path? It, like things that are boiling off of it being left behind is that what that is yeah yeah so actually technically there are two tails that form mm. there's one called the dust tail which is exactly what you were describing that basically as the surface is heating up and these things are turning back into gases you know you could imagine maybe there's a little pocket with a pebble on it and everything underneath it is evaporating out. And so then it knocks this little pebble away, right? And so you can imagine that little bits of ice and rock and all sorts of things that are not a gas are coming off of it. And that makes the tail that kind of arcs away a little bit, or it looks like it arcs away. It's, it's really that it's getting left behind by the, the snowball. And then the sun is also kind of pushing it away a little bit. Mm. And so that makes the first tail. What do you mean by the sun is pushing it away? Well, so we're going to be talking here in the next few episodes that actually light has momentum. Mm. And so the sunlight itself can actually push things away from the comet. You know, photons of light are, are hitting these little pebbles and then knocking them back a little bit and a little bit and a little bit. And that's just enough to knock them away from the rest of the comet. Is that what is meant by this phrase I've heard, the solar wind? Or is that something else? The solar wind is a different thing. Okay. Um, but that's also important here because so oh. the sun is producing light, which is what we normally notice and care about. Mm -hmm. But it's also 
shooting out a bunch of subatomic particles. And these often have charges to them mm. and thus charged particles that are shooting out of the sun. So like what, electrons? Could be electrons. Protons? Be ions, protons. Um, it could be something more obscure. But basically, these are important. Here on Earth, if you've ever seen the Aurora Borealis, uh -huh. that's what we're talking about is the subatomic particles are running into the Earth and interacting with our atmosphere. Oh, okay, so the same thing that the sun is doing that is responsible for the Aurora borealis is also what's responsible for at least in part the comet's tail yeah well oh. that's actually the second tail that the comet makes Oh, the second tail. Okay. Yeah. So that's what we call, some people call it a gas tail. I've seen it before as a plasma tail. Hmm. You know, this gas is coming off of the comet and the solar wind is running into the gas and can really affect the gas part itself. And every time these subatomic particles are running into the gas, then it's maybe stripping away some electrons from that. So it's charging them up as well. And then they want to, when an atom loses an electron, it wants to grab an electron back. And so when it does that, though, it, it shoots out a, a little bit of light as well. So anyway, it makes a, a faint tail as well. Hmm. So if you've seen it just looking through a telescope, you've probably only noticed the one tail, mm -hmm. the, the dust. That's the more obvious of the two. But it's one of those things that if you took a picture of it and had a long shutter time, then the second tail would show up. So like if you go online and you try to look up pictures of comets, you'll almost always see two tails. Mm -hmm. But if you look through a telescope yourself, you would probably only notice the one. Okay. I feel like I saw a picture of it online and it seemed to have two tails. Yeah, so the, the plasma tail is shooting directly away from the sun. Uh-huh. And the dust tail, it's not getting pushed back quite as much. In a so picture, maybe, I mean, but since you mentioned it, maybe we should uh, post a link to this particular story as well, where you can actually see both of these tails that we're talking about. Yeah, that's a good idea. I mean, one of them looks like a really broad sort of fanned out kind of tail, and one looks like a really narrow sort of streak. Yeah, so the narrow streak is the plasma tail. Okay. And the broad fanned out one is the dust tail. So what you're saying is that if you are fortunate enough to go out and see it at night, mm -hmm. you're probably not going to see the long skinny one right. with the unaided eye. You'll probably probably should expect to see the more fanned out one. Yes. So just be ready. You're not like if you're going based on this picture that maybe you've seen online, that might not be what your search image should be. Right. Okay. Yeah. And the tails are always pointing away from the sun. Mm -hmm. So that's another misconception. People think like, you would think like it has a tail. It's just flow. It's like my hair just flowing in the wind and, you know, <laughs> but that's not the case. It's actually always being pushed away by the sun. So in fact, when it is first approaching the sun, the tail is back behind it. But then when it's going away from the sun, the tail is actually in front of where it's going. So even the debris tail. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. I mean, it's not exactly right in front, but it's, it's getting pushed away. And the tail is longer huh. when it's really close to the sun and it gets shorter and shorter as it goes away from it. That makes sense. And so, I mean, that must mean that the debris is getting pushed away faster than the comet itself is moving. Yeah. It'd be sort of like being in a coal burning train with a really strong tailwind so that you're sort of constantly driving into your smoke. I would think of it more like if I'm already on the train, uh -huh. this little pebble or whatever is already traveling with me on the train. It just needs right. a little extra bump to go some other direction, right? So to me, I would think of it like, okay, well, if the sun is behind me, that's that extra little bump, which is like me just throwing it forward. I see. Okay. So it's not like it's not moving and the sun is flicking it. It's already moving and the sun is just adding a little bit extra oomph to it. Okay. Yeah, that's that's a good point. I hadn't really accounted for the momentum that it already had in that direction. 
Yeah. Yeah. That makes more sense. So what becomes of this debris? Does it just sort of float out there forever? Yeah, basically. I mean, it's now changed its orbit in space. And so it's just kind of floating around. Interestingly, I don't know if you have heard of the comet Swift-Tuttle. The name rings a bell. It last came near us in 1992. Okay. It has a period of 133 years. So we probably won't see that one again Uh in our lifetimes. But it left behind a trail of debris. And every August, we actually pass through that debris. Oh, that's why I've heard of it. It's because you get this like little meteor shower or something, right? Exactly. Yeah. All these little rocks and things are falling into the earth and creating meteor showers. Yeah. I've I've seen that meteor shower. In fact, I set up a little camera on a time lapse to try to get some of the little meteorites. And I actually Mm -hmm. got some pictures of the meteorites so yeah that's that's really cool so august okay yeah and so every august we pass through that and it happens to be in the night sky when you're looking at it it happens to be coming out of the perseus constellation and so because all these meteors seem to be coming from perseus it is called the perseid meteor shower Ah, okay so when i think about the solar system and what makes up the different planets right so you've got your inner rocky planets Mm-hmm. And then you have your outer gas giants. Right. And then we have this other category of thing that seems to have some features that are more similar to like the inner rocky planets in that there's like chunks of rock and frozen water and they, but then they also have like little bits of frozen gas as well. Mm-hmm. And so where did these things come from? Like, why didn't they kind of congeal with the rest of the material as different planets were forming? What are they sort of like the leftovers? Well, well, we're going to have to do a deep dive. This is a, a classic crisscrossing science. I'm going to geek out. And so if you're not so interested in the beginnings of the solar system, you can uh, fast forward 30 seconds, a minute, whatever it is, and we'll be back here. But basically, so the beginning of the solar system, the solar system was just this cloud of gas. And when I say gas, I mean pebbles as well. <laughs> okay. Our solar system is the remnant of a past supernova uh-huh. explosion. So when really, really big stars die, they explode and that's called a supernova nova and sections of the that explosion leftoverness will form a new star system and and so basically our solar system is like a fourth or fifth generation star mm. meaning that there had been a supernova 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 and then we formed our solar system okay so we started out as just basically this cloud of gas then you can kind of imagine it's kind of fun to think about like okay well when i was in grade school we used to play the blob it was a game on the playground okay where like, you know, I'm it to start out with. And if I happen to touch you, then we have to hold hands and we keep trying to grab everybody on the playground and chase after them <laughs> and all this stuff. Okay. And so that's sort of what the early solar system was, just things that were, everything was cold. Uh-huh. And so hydrogen is just as much of a rock at those temperatures as gold would be, right? So everything is, is a hard rock, but they're all attracted to each other by gravity just ever so slightly. And so they're all kind of coming together and bumping into each other and sticking to each other and so forth. Hmm. And gradually... Most of this stuff will coalesce into the center of the solar system, forming Mm -hmm. the sun. And remember, over 99% of all the mass in the solar system is in the sun. Oh, wow. So even including Jupiter and Saturn. Yeah. Okay. Most stuff was attracted to the middle of the solar system. Mm -hmm. But there were a few things that just happened to have a decent enough orbit that they could circle around it a couple of times, right? And you can kind of imagine like if we were in a spaceship and... I was going straight towards the sun, I'd run into the sun. But if I was off a little bit, it would pull me in and I'd orbit around it. Mm -hmm. And if I had just the right energy, I might form a stable orbit and just continue to orbit around it in some sort of ellipse. Okay. And during this time, things just kept running into each other more and more. And, you know, because even though maybe 
you're in a perfect stable orbit, something else is not and it'll run into you. Gradually, things just kind of ran into each other and kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And that's how the planets ultimately formed. Same thing was happening even far out for all these comets and things is that they gradually are building up and they got bigger and bigger as well. Now, they're far, far out there. And so there's not nearly as much stuff way out there to run into as there mm -hmm. is in close. And okay. so they're not going to get as big. Okay. Mm -hmm. So ultimately, then the sun turned on. Fusion started and it started really giving out a lot of light and heat and subatomic particles, the solar wind. And that ultimately pushed away anything left over that had not formed. So if there was any clouds of gas or anything that had not actually fallen into the sun yet, most of that got eventually pushed away. Okay. But is that pushing on our atmosphere as well? Yeah, it is. Oh, so our atmosphere is slowly being stripped away? Well, we have enough gravity that most of our atmosphere can stay here. Oh, okay. So, so okay. We can keep nitrogen gas very easily and carbon okay. dioxide and oxygen gas. Okay. It's very hard for us to keep lighter things like helium and hydrogen if okay. they're just in their gaseous form. Okay. If you were one of these molecules or particles that was not near something else that was massive enough to sort of be gravitationally held there, mm -hmm. then once fusion in the sun started happening, that sort of pushed everything away and kind of sort of swept it to the outer rim of the solar system. Is that? Yeah. So this story is really a question of temperature and mass. So if you have enough mass, you can hold on to certain size things. Like we are big enough that we can hold on to nitrogen. Mm -hmm. We're not big enough to hold on to hydrogen at our temperature. Mm -hmm. If we happen to be much, much farther away from the sun, we'd be a colder object and we would maybe be able to hold on to hydrogen as well. Okay. So And so something like Jupiter, for instance, was far enough away and maybe already at the point this all started, it was big enough already to hold on to things anyway, but it's big enough and far enough away that it could hold on to hydrogen. And so it was sort of vacuuming up any excess gases that were coming its way, mm. which made it, allowed it to get even bigger. Okay. And so okay. that's basically what comets are doing, except they're so far away and so diffuse that they didn't have the opportunity to grab onto a whole lot of things. Mm. Now, it's interesting that you were bringing up that you mentioned that we have different planets. We have the terrestrial planets, the rocky planets, mm -hmm. and we have then an asteroid belt outside of that. And then we have the gas giants. And then we have these other things, which are called a Kuiper belt. And then outside of that, an Oort cloud. Mm. But to me, it all ties together. I mean, you were saying that you think those are all completely different things. But to me, it all ties together with this idea of temperature and size. Okay. That something like Mercury is so close to the sun that the only things it can hold on to are, you know, rock. Uh-huh. So no atmosphere. It has no atmosphere. Yeah. Okay. And then you get a little bit farther away and you have like Venus and Earth are both pretty big. But Venus can hold on to a lot of carbon dioxide because it's big enough to do that. And carbon dioxide is pretty heavy. Okay. You know? But then like going out more, Mars is not big enough to hold on to much of an atmosphere. The sun basically has stripped away whatever atmosphere it once had. Mars being the fourth planet outside of Earth. And so even yep. though it's colder and could have that effect working in its favor, the fact that it's too small right. means that it still couldn't. Right. And so comets are doing the same thing. They're way out there. And so they're when they're out there, it's like a, a hard rock. Everything is just packed together like a dirty snowball. But then when it comes in close, then some of that starts changing because it heats up and things start turning back into gases and leaving behind all this debris. Hmm. So interestingly, then every comet is falling apart. And so yeah. eventually every single comet will break apart and stop coming around. Yeah. Yeah. That was sort of dawning on me that um, they have sort of a finite number of times around the sun before they all just sort of. Foot. Yep. Which kind of crazy. But yeah, so most of these objects are located outside of Neptune's orbit. And that area is something we call the Kuiper Belt. Mm. Some people call it the Kuiper Belt, but they're wrong. <laughs>
And then there's another region outside of that, which is named after the astronomer Jan Oort, and that's called the Oort Cloud. Oort, Oort, Oort. Yeah. Which, beyond being fun to say, um, <laughs> is something that is where we believe a lot of the comets are coming from. Mm. It's from way out there. The model right now is basically that these things are just orbiting stably out there, and then something maybe comes near enough to them to disrupt their orbit. And then with now a new orbit, they turn into a comet, an active comet, if you will. So that it what do you mean something? What do you mean something comes near enough them? Like a well, if like a Borg spaceship or something, or well, that's probably too small to really affect it. But Neptune, just within its normal orbit, if it happens to come in somewhat close to one of these objects, oh, its gravity could disrupt the gravity of the comet and cause it to start falling in towards the sun. Okay, so a little little bit of pull from Neptune's gravity as Neptune's going past could yeah. then initiate. Okay, that, yeah, that makes sense. And okay. I've also seen ideas that maybe a passing star could do it, but I don't totally understand what they mean by that. So I'll say it because I've seen it, but. <laughs> okay. Well, that's why I asked is because I feel like I've heard that explanation or read that explanation before about when our solar system is close to some other star or something for a whatever, many thousands of years, mm-hmm. that then that is enough to give a little additional tug or something to some of those. And, and But yeah, I don't know. I, that that always flabbergasted me just because it seemed like other stars are so much farther away that I was surprised that the gravity of a different sun would have an effect even to our solar system. So no. I, but I, what do I know? Yeah, but the, the argument basically is that something somewhere is disturbing them out where they are just enough to kind of tweak their orbits and make them start doing this very eccentric ellipse. Mm -hmm. Well, one of the things that I've always found interesting about comets and their relationship to life on planet Earth is there's there are some hypotheses that argue that at least some portion of the water on planet Earth was initially delivered by heavy comet bombardment. Right. And the the argument there is that basically as Earth was forming, Mm -hmm. it had about the size that it has now, but it was a lot hotter than it is now. And so then the argument there is that, well, at those temperatures, things are too hot for Earth to actually hold on to water. Mm. That because the Earth is so hot that the water would actually be moving around so fast and so light that it would actually be able to escape by itself. Hmm. So yes, I have heard that theory that water came from comets. Or at least some of it. I will say one thing. So the European Space Agency actually landed on a comet six, seven years ago or something like that. They did a few tests and then they had trouble with it. And I don't remember the details of what the troubles were, but they did at least get to do some analysis of some of the water trapped Mm -hmm. within the comet. Mm -hmm. And so there are different isotopes of water. Uh So we've talked about in recent episodes, actually, with fusion that there are different you can have hydrogen or if there's an extra neutron within the hydrogen it's called deuterium right and so anyway when you're drinking a glass of water some percentage of those water molecules have deuterium in them right uh, just naturally so you can look at that and find out like what's the percentage of this is made out of heavy water with the deuterium and what's the percentage is just being h2o long story short that particular comet at least had a different ratio of the heavy water to the water we find here on earth mm. and so what that would suggest at least then would be that earth's water is not from that comet which is obvious because that comet's <laughs> still a comet but i don't but know if that so if that i guess the point is if that comet is indicative of other comets 
comets, yeah. then it, it can't explain the accumulation of all of the water on Earth. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. So I guess the question then is, what do other comets' waters look like? Exactly. And we've only ever done that with one comet. Uh-huh. And so you'd have to do a lot of speculation from there. But Well, cool. I'm really hoping for a clear night in the next few nights so I can get my telescope out. Remind me again. So it's somewhere between the Big Dipper and the Little Dipper? Yeah, it seems to be passing right between the two. Okay. Uh, it's closer to the Little Dipper than the Big. Okay. Yeah, I would say in the next week, we'll have a new moon coming the 21st. When this comes out, it'll be a new moon pretty much. And so that'll okay. be the darkest part of the, the time of all this. So Okay. And it from that point, the comet itself should get a little bit brighter and brighter and brighter for the next several days until mm-hmm. February 1st. And that would be its closest point to us. Okay. It's definitely okay. worth checking out. Excellent. All right. Well, I will uh, report in if I'm able to see it. That'll be cool. So, all, right. all right. Cool. Well, thanks, Mike. Yeah, no problem. This episode was recorded on the beautiful campus of Linfield University. Rodi Ortega wrote our theme music. If you like this episode or others like it, you should subscribe to the podcast. That way you'll download the latest episode as soon as it becomes available. While there, leave a comment and a rating, and that'll help other people find our podcast. If you have ideas for a future episode, or if there are phenomenon that you would love us to explore, email us at crisscrossingsciency at gmail.com. All one word, all lowercase. Or hit us up on Facebook. Until next time, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.